ночной шли вдвоем, а фонарики горели. И прибитие их на момент прийти, и сердца наши замляли. Hello and welcome to the SRB podcast. I'm your host, Sean Guillory. I'm back after a long hiatus and the podcast will now resume a regular schedule. One guest today, Talal Nizamidin, on Russia's foreign policy in the Middle East and its latest gambit in Syria. Talal Nizamidin is Dean of Student Affairs at the American University in Beirut. He writes widely on Russian foreign policy in the Middle East. He is the author of Russia in the Middle East Towards a New Foreign Policy and most recently of Putin's new order in the Middle East, Talal Nizamidin. Big news in international headlines now is Russia's military intervention into the uh, Syrian civil war. And the purpose, it seems, this seems to be to shore up the Assad regime. Um, But let's start with some historical context. What were the principal objects of Russian foreign policy in the Middle East during and since the Cold War? Well, uh... Historically, I think uh, scholars have that have been divided into two, two types of uh, sort of theoretical thinking about Russia, uh, even since imperial times. And one is is a group who believe that Russia is essentially an expansionist power that, by its very nature, because geographic, uh, its political system, and so forth and the quest for resources, it's driven by an expansionist uh, sort of ambition. And another is, is the opposite, that it's essentially a defensive one, and that because of its size, that it feels itself to be vulnerable, and so behaves in a way that uh, essentially seeks to shore up its borders. So during the Cold War, uh, depending on which approach one took, um, the Soviet Union, since Stalin especially, uh, created a buffer zone in Eastern Europe. It created a set of key allies um, and partners in the Middle East and tried to do that in, in Asia as well, uh, to some extent, with, uh, with China for some time uh, and other countries. I think that uh, historically what we have seen is that Russia tends to go from being expansionist to being defensive, depending on its internal political situation. And during the Cold War, this was highlighted, uh, you know, Stalin tried to push out, Khrushchev tried to push out, uh, Brezhnev as well was expansionist, essentially, uh, but was limited always by the power of the United States and, uh, and NATO, the United States and its allies, from expanding further. Um, early Russia, after independence, or post-Soviet Russia, was defensive, essentially. But it seems right now, with Putin, we have a, a, an expansionist mindset once again. Now, um, a, a shift in, in your book, you described that a shift occurred in, in Russian engagement in the Middle East uh, began with the influence of Yegeny Primakov. And, and as we all know, Primakov recently uh, passed away. Um, talk about his contribution to Russian foreign policy in the Middle East and, and perhaps his legacy. Well, I, I would say that he's actually been the most important uh, statesman uh, in terms of foreign policy uh, since the late Gorbachev era, actually, uh, even before, uh, before Yeltsin. He's a, he's a Middle East expert, but he's also highly, he was highly respected as a foreign policy strate- strategist and thinker. And what he did was, which sounds very simple, but uh, actually was very important for Russia. 
he removed the foreign policy domain from ideology. In other words, that it was not that he he said that the foreign ministry and foreign policy should not be driven by ideological thinking, either by communist ideology and under Yeltsin by this modern kind of pro-Western liberal mentality that dominated in the early 1990s and was uh, sort of uh, epitomized by uh, by Andrei Kozarev, the foreign uh, the foreign minister of the time. Um, and the post-Soviet uh, democratic Russia. And he also came up with a couple of other very important ideas. The first was that Russia was not necessarily hostile to the West, but should not be subservient to it. In other words, that Russian foreign policy should be pragmatic, should seek its specific interests uh, and build its own relationships. Um, based on its own needs of the time. In other words, a pragmatic approach to foreign policy thinking. And uh, the other one was that uh, Russia on its own uh, was a weak country. And he developed this idea of a multipolar world, which would counterbalance, which at the time was you know, considered the, a unipolar world uh, in the post-Soviet era, dominated by the United States. He promoted the idea of Russia partnering with other rising powers, including China, specifically China, but also uh, the BRICS countries, uh, you know, uh, as well as in the Middle East, um, Iran was an important player, um, and also building relationships with even traditionally hostile countries, such as Turkey. So he, he promoted the idea of a pragmatic Russia that uh, developed relationships with a range of countries to create balance for itself and also balance against what was considered at the time a very uh, aggressive the United States uh, that was you know driving its own interests and that was interesting because this policy for example in the Middle East uh, led to the foundations of relationships with Iran and also Israel at the same time as well as Saudi Arabia and Syria and Lebanon um, so, the diversification of relationships in Russian foreign policy thinking, rather than essentially placing Russia in one camp or another. What's very interesting is that Putin initially adopted Primakov's policy, and uh, this lasted well into the Putin era. However, during Putin's last term, he has shown specifically, but you know, I would say a little bit earlier too, uh, he moved away from this thinking and has arguably made Russian foreign policy non-pragmatic again by being driven by traditional nationalistic and uh, you know the, the even uh, religious undertones in its uh, in its thinking. Can you talk a little bit about what those impulses are in terms of nationalism and, and religious thinking and how it you know portrays to their approach to the Middle East? Putin, as we know. Uh, has moved away from what we consider to be, you know, a Russia moving towards a democracy, towards a more authoritarian country. There is a growing sort of cult of the personality and to more traditional what, what Putin has, or the, you know, the Putin leadership has defined as traditional values in Russia. Um, we know in Tsarist times there was the, that famous uh, trio of autocracy, autonomy, and orthodox, uh, orthodoxy, 
that uh, characterized imperial Russia. And there's something similar in that, you know, similar vein that is uh, sort of being rebuilt right now. The idea of a strong ruler, uh, you know, Putin, the idea of a unified, united Russian nationalist state that is rather intolerant of the other. Um, and orthodoxy in terms of a revival of the Orthodox Church as the official religion and uh, sort of uh, the, the setter of values for this modern Russian state under Putin. Now, this is interesting because it, it's, it's created difficulties. Traditionally, Russia, as we know, is a multi-ethnic, multi-religious empire. And uh, whenever the leadership in Moscow has tried to emphasize too much specifically Russian and Orthodox values, it has tended to alienate other communities within the Russian Federation or, or historically the empire. So by moving towards that, he has potentially made it difficult for himself in this, for the future. And also will be interesting to see how he navigates through that in his policy in the Middle East. Yeah, I, I think the, the parallel with uh, Nicholas I and, and his official nationality is actually quite interesting to think about, especially in the context of, you know, Nicholas's approach to Europe was very much in response to the revolutions of 1848. And you can see a similar type of uh, relationship to the Arabs, Russia's relationship to Arab Spring, but also the color revolutions in, in, in post-Soviet space. Um, do you see that thread also part of that this calculation in how at least Putin sees the the Arab Spring? Absolutely, I think this is central, and I and I've tried to highlight that in several articles recently. Um, for Putin, defending you know or against these revolutions, uh, these uprisings has set the tone for this change and actually the move away from the Primakov kind of uh, policy towards a specific one. And the, this, these color revolutions, by the way, extend to beyond the post-Soviet space, if, if we include uh, Lebanon uh, with these, the revolution as well. And now with the Arab Spring, there is an important message that has come out, which is a threat to Putin. And that is people power. People can mass in the streets, protest, bring down governments, fight corruption, regardless of whether we think these revolutions have been successful or not, or whether they have uh, achieved their goals or not. For uh, a sensitive authoritarian leader such as Putin, not only does it pose a threat to his allies, whether it's, uh, you know, in, in the post-Soviet uh, states and other countries, but also ultimately to Russia and to Putin himself. So there is this kind of fear, and Putin himself has alluded to that indirectly by, po by pointing out personally and through uh, people around him, through his uh, chief advisors, that these revolutions have really been a conspiracy instigated by outside powers to get people to overthrow and topple uh, leaders of those countries. And so what he has done in Russia is taken steps such as uh, limiting the funding to NGOs that have external funding and, uh, you know, changes to internet laws that limit, uh, you know, social media, particularly communications and, and other aspects 
uh, of censorship that essentially fear any kind of uprising or, or mass protest that might take place within Russia itself. So by stifling it outside of Russia in these countries and by showing them to be a failure, essentially, if we go down the line of this thinking, then it, it's ultimately, I think, a defense of Russia itself and the Russian political system as it stands. Yeah, and I would also add to that, and this goes to the Nicholas I kind of vein, and that is these the way Putin sees these revolutions as in destabilizing the order of states and the order of regions. And if you consider the, his experience of the collapse of the Soviet Union and what it did to Russia, um, it's it's interesting to see how that that experience has colored his view of the outside world, and his and and seeing revolutions in the toppling of governments as as inherently destabilizing. Absolutely, this is a very strong mentality. Although it's interesting, again, we go back to Primakov, a, a cornerstone of his policy was the notion that in the international system, sovereignty is sacred. It's an, it's a, it's an untouchable uh, kind of uh, principle in international law, which the West largely accepted as well, which, you know, despite issues about you know, changes in the modern world, uh, increasing globalization and interdependent world, uh, and also the idea of humanitarian aid. What do you do in a country that where the people are, are facing sort of mass repression and so forth? But still, people accepted that notion. What's interesting about Putin as well, I think that we, I think we are seeing very interesting changes in the, in the past three, four years uh, with Putin. Even this very important principle that Russia has held on to for many years, you know, under Primakov specifically, and, and even before that, the notion of sovereignty, he's violating that now himself. He did it with vis-a-vis -vis Ukraine. It started out with Georgia and now with Syria. And, you know, I think there is, a, there is now a question mark about whether this talk about sovereignty seems to be uh, you know, purely based on self-interest, whenever it suits Russia to 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 raise that or Putin to raise that point, um, and that in actual fact that, that he himself uh, sees that as a less important point when it comes to pursuing uh, his own direct interest or Moscow's specific interest. On that, I would say that you know I think this approach is is fairly normative for for powers to to preach sovereignty and the sacred sacredness of sovereignty, but when it clashes with uh, their own foreign their own interests, that you know the issue of sovereignty is is you know done away with. But I also like another thing though too. I was you know the 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 question of sovereignty and the way Putin speaks about it, he constantly reference, references the idea of legitimacy and the law in terms of he, he did this with Ukraine and he's doing this to some extent with Syria where these leaders are under the law are the, the, the legitimate leaders of these countries and the uprisings against them are illegitimate and unlawful and it's a, it, it's a different type of understanding of sovereignty than one may think of in Western democracies where sovereignty is for Putin is located in the legitimacy of the leadership under some sort of law, you know, elected or whatever the system provides. Whereas um, in Western democratic understandings of sovereignty, it comes from the legitimacy of the populace, of the nation. And when that legitimacy 
is taken away, like in the case of Ukraine and also the case of Syria, that leader, regardless of the law, is no longer legitimate. Yes, very interesting point and and very true. Um, Yeah, traditionalists, you know, sort of see sovereignty more in in the case of, you know, more in in a sort of a perspective of of borders and uh, and internationally recognized uh, sort of institutions um, for as long as they stand, regardless of whether they're democratic or whether they have they have uh, the the support of the populace or legitimacy among the people. Uh, and this is definitely true of of the Russian thinking. But I think what's again with Putin, sovereignty and legitimacy and law sort of equate to power as well. And uh, he kind of plays around with that a little bit by seeking to to change factors on the ground, sometimes, uh, you know, in a, in a rather sort of subtle way or secretive way by, you know, by sending in forces, by arming opposition, you know, certain groups as in Eastern Ukraine. Uh, to determine, you know, the legitimacy of of the government uh, on the ground. And he's doing that with Syria now, you know. In other words, with Syria, by doing what he's doing, he's essentially preserving the status quo of the, of, of the leadership in power to again claim that this is an issue of sovereignty and the legal representative of the country. So it's very much equated, to, he very much equates that with power and military power in this uh, in this uh, respect. And with Ukraine, although the, the setting is different, that seems to be the case as well. Now, let's step back a bit uh, into uh, the early 2000s and how this, how actions of the United States have, have changed or, or altered Russian engagement with the Middle East. Uh, how did the U.S. invasion of Iraq and, and the smashing of, of the, the Hussein state, the Ba'athist state, create new avenues for Russian engagement with Middle Eastern states? I think... Uh, <clears throat> You know, there's there's wide consensus that the U.S. invasion of Iraq uh, altered significantly the balance of powers in the region and opened many opportunities. Uh, you know, it, it, it changed the face of the region in many ways, and I think in many ways that the United States itself did not expect or could not have foreseen. Uh, but one of the things it did is it led to this huge, uh, you know, what we what now is again popular in the media and uh, what 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 is a reality to to a large extent on the ground and this Sunni Shiite divide, which is essentially a battle between uh, Iran and Saudi Arabia uh, for hegemony in the region, um, and essentially it strengthened Iran significantly by creating, you know, what. Uh, the, the King of Jordan, King Abdullah, and others referred to as the, as the Shiite Crescent, which meant essentially that Iran, Iraq, Syria, and Lebanon became, um, in one way or another, under Tehran's uh, influence. And in turn, what this did is allow it allowed Russia entry into the region as a, as a realistic partner for a balance uh, against the traditional United States hegemony of the region, or the way it was perceived. Um, Before then, Russia did not really have much chance of entry in the Middle East until 2002, 2003, 
we know that Russia was largely uh, disassociated from the Middle East. Uh, although Primakov had made some, you know, uh, entry points, it was still very limited. The, the situation in Iraq changed that. It created a new reality on the ground. And thanks to, if you like, the gamble of, of Russia by partnering with Iran in, in many respects, and, part, you know, the main, the main track was through the nuclear program, and supporting Iran that way, and Syria, and Hezbollah, Iran became a re uh, Russia became a realistic player in the region that could uh, that could have genuine impact, and also could challenge the United States not only in the Middle East but beyond by using circumstances in the Middle East uh, and 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 sort of shifting them in its own favor, and we actually saw signs of that well before uh, the current situation or the so you know this, the Arab uprisings or the Arab Spring. Um, we saw that with the with the Hariri tribunal, uh, when, you know, in Lebanon, and uh, the the problems that were faced here, um, and in other areas as well. So I think uh, this is definitely a factor that's important. And now we're seeing it with Egypt as well. Um, what it has done is it has given players on the ground in the in, in the Middle East the chance to say to the United States, look, if you don't give us what we want, if you don't support us, we can always go to Russia and Russia will give us what we want. And so now Russia is selling weapons not only to Iraq uh, on, on a mass scale, but it is courting and uh, having limited, but still important success with Sisi in Egypt, uh, with important military deals there, which was something that would have been unforeseeable, you know, I think, uh, under Mubarak, at least, and, uh, you know, even until quite recently, because the Egyptians can now play with that and um, and sort of go back to the Cold War game of saying, you know, to the you know, to the United States, as they did then, you know, we can go to the Soviet Union if, if you don't give us what we want. And Russia's doing that. He's putting himself out there for doing that. Because remember, the U.S. invasion of Iraq, um, regardless of, you know, obviously it's a controversial issue. It changed, the, it, 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 it terrified many of the governments on the ground. And again, we go back to this original discussion about authoritarian regimes or, 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 or regimes that don't feel that, you know, they're, they're not necessarily democratic or have the backing of their people. Are we protected? And when George Bush went into Iraq with, you know, with a new perception of, of, of a right of a country to, to change regimes, then this terrified essentially all the, all the governments of the region because, uh, because of the lack of democracy that there is in the Middle East. And also countries such as Russia and China and others as well did not, did not approve of this, uh, of this uh, new perspective uh, and this new power. That uh, Essentially, by, uh, by doing that, it made you know, the United States appear uh, to be potentially a threat and made Russia a much more attractive option. And so, you know, Putin put himself out there as an alternative, again, as a potential guardian and uh, partner, starting with the ability to, uh, to provide weapons, which, you know, the United States, again, uh, had become increasingly reticent uh, about doing, not only because... Traditionally, the United States uh, was uncomfortable about arming countries that might potentially threaten Israel, but also because of uh, a sort of a public opinion in the United States in terms of arming regimes that 
would be using these weapons that traditionally would be very repressive against their own people, or because of the threat of extremists and that these weapons would fall into the hands of, of, of unstable or radical regimes that could threaten the West. So Russia, uh, after the Iraq invasion, put itself out there as a, as a country that would be the guardian of any regime that felt itself threatened or potentially threatened by the United States or by uh, any democratic wave that might come about. Now, what's what's kind of struck me about Russia's uh, relations with Middle Eastern countries is the fact that it has fairly good relations with Israel on the one hand and fairly good relations with Iran on the other, these two supposed mortal enemies. Um, how does Putin balance these relationships and how do they influence Russia's stand on the Palestinian question? Russia has done very well in that sense, actually, and arguably it's done it better than the United States up until, you know, recently. What Russia says, what it, the, the way it markets itself, if you like, or what Putin does, and I think this, this started before Putin again with Primakov, is that we, by having good relations with both sides, we can be a good mediator, we can be a good balancer, we can check the other from doing anything that would threaten you know, the other side. In other words, if the Israelis have any specific, had any concern about the Syrians and any weapons programs and any rocket sales and so forth, they would go to Russia to try and limit that, and Russia would do that. And in turn, um, you know, if with regards to the Israelis, then, then, then they would do the same with regards to Syria. They would give assurances to the regime that Israel has no intention of of, uh, of doing anything that would threaten you uh, <clears throat> in, in uh, being there, in, in, in existing, if you like. Likewise with Iran, I think with a nuclear program, Russia managed to convince the Israelis to, to a large extent that its support for the Iranian nuclear program would be limited. And some of this was explicit. And another aspect to it was intelligence sharing where it seems that the Russians did assure the Israelis to a large extent that the, the support it was giving, giving um, would not exceed an amount that would allow Iran to threaten Israel, in part because, and, and, and I actually happen to disagree with this argument, but in part because there was a, the ability to convince important segments of the Israeli public opinion and policymakers, as well as Europeans and in the West, that Russia has no interest in Iran having a nuclear bomb. So the Russians were kind of saying, it's better for us to be there, to be close to the Iranians and be able to guide them, not to do anything stupid, than, than, than to be you know, detached from them as the Americans were. And so I think they, they played that balancing role. I think, again, they also did that in terms of you know, even minor differences, uh, such as the swapping of prisoners, uh, uh, I mentioned weapons sales and, and the limiting of that in, in, in negotiations. With regards to the Israeli-Palestinian, uh, you know, defunct peace pro process, the, traditionally Russia had been the friend of the Palestinians, but I think we've seen with Putin he hasn't been much of a friend. Russia has done very little, actually, in support of the Palestinians, other than, you know, promoting you know, and supporting minor diplomatic uh, initiatives. Um, but 
you know, the, is, the Russians have been pretty good with the Israelis. And remember, there is a very large Russian community in Israel, which is an important trading hub for Russia and also a cultural bridge with Russia. And I think that has allowed Russia to be, you know, to feel closer and Russian policy policymakers to feel rather close with Israel uh, in that sense, to have that cu cultural affinity. Um, but at the same time, the, it knows that the Palestinians need the Russians because the Palestinians know that the United States is going to be more more biased towards Israel than them. And that when it, whenever it comes to a crisis or to any potential a revival of, of serious peace talks that will be important to have Russia on their side. So they've just been playing that very delicate balancing role very well. Okay, well, let's move on to current events of the day in terms of Syria. Um, everybody seems to be asking one question, and that is, what is Putin up to in Syria? What do you think his short-term and long-term goals are? This is, a, this is the question of the day. I think the short-term aim the very short-term aim, it seems, there's plenty of evidence to highlight this, has been to keep Assad in power. It does seem right now that the Assad regime was close to collapse militarily and uh, that Iran and its, its allies on the ground were struggling to maintain even important areas, most notably Zabadani and, uh, and also areas close to the so-called Alawite heartland and protecting those. So the Russian intervention in the very short term, I think it happened quickly and, and suddenly and decisively, was because their intelligence that did seem to pick out that Assad may be in danger of collapsing, which would have been a collapse for Russian policy and, and Russian, if you like, uh, prestige in the world. I think in the long term, the Russians have to... Uh, are realistic. I think they recognize that Syria as it is cannot continue as a unified state. And there is a growing sort of belief that one of the, one of the uh, goals is a divided Syria where Russia would have a foothold on the eastern Mediterranean and, you know, what some people have called the Al Alawite heartland, uh, the plains uh, of western Syria. Um, to actually establish a strong state there, which which culturally and you know ethnically and and religiously does differ from the rest of Syria, so uh, although it's complicated there as well, uh, I think that might be very well a, a name of Putin in the long run. That if the worst comes to the worst, then they then Russia would have a key ally on the eastern Mediterranean, a foothold south of Turkey, north of Lebanon very strategic point, with naval bases already there, with air bases already being established, with Russian military personnel on site, and with the government, quite frankly, you know, whether Assad stays or whether it's, it's, it's others in the Alawite elite stay, who will be very, very dependent on Moscow for survival. So I think he has, you know, he had uh, legitimate short-term and long-term uh, aspirations uh, that, were, that were too attractive to resist. The, the constant refrain coming out of the United States is that the Russians 
aren't hit, aren't bombing ISIS, even though Putin said that this was the the purpose of his intervention. Um, and instead, the Russians are concentrating on hitting Al Qaeda affiliates and other militants that directly threaten Assad. Just in line with what you just said. Um, nevertheless, how does ISIS figure in, in Russian involvement? And in particular, I'm thinking of the potential threat ISIS poses to Central Asian states. Absolutely. Um, not only Central Asia, but the Caucasus and, uh, you know, Chechnya and uh, Ingushetia and other areas as well. Um, and let's not forget Moscow it, itself. You know, they can strike in the heart of Russia. I think um, it's a big risk that Russia has taken. Ironically, if one wants to be cynic, that might explain why Russians, the Russians are not directly challenging ISIS. Uh, but that would be a, a very cynical view. I think that the um, evidence, again, we're, we're reading in the past few days about the, the Russian strikes and military activity, clearly they are not targeting ISIS. They are targeting areas that are looking to push back the opposition, not only Al-Qaeda affiliates, by, uh, by the way, but also some of the secular elements and the Free Syrian Army and, and, and others as well, pushing them back from the, uh, from the Alawite areas and from strategic points where the existing forces came close to collapse. And according to reports, this is being done in coordination through intelligence coordination with Iran, specifically whose forces have been on the ground and have become also quite exhausted in defending these areas and maintaining them. ISIS is you know, again, ISIS, you know, how we see ISIS really very much depends on our view of the Middle East and how they're being used by, not only by the Assad regime, but also previously, you know, if you like, forerunners by uh, the Iraqi opposition. Assad, f f for a leader like Assad and for a regime, you know, as in Syria, having radical terrorist groups who use the social media, who terrify the West, are very useful because they, sh they come up to show them in a positive light, you know, to show the, the, their rule. And this is not too distant, you know, from the idea and the experience that Putin had. Remember, Putin came to power and, and rose to prominence in light of Chechen terrorists, uh, starting with the Moscow bombings and also in the early 2000s with some horrific ordeals such as the Beslan uh, hostage-taking crisis, such as the, uh, the, the theater uh, crisis and, 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 other, and other very well, you know, highly publicized events that really terrified people in Russia and also public opinion in the West and showed Assad to be a decisive, secular, rational player who was standing up to this type of religious extremism. So ISIS are only useful in as much as they are a media, uh, if you like, decoy to justify military action. But I think realistically on the ground, we have to be, you know, if we remain sober, there are more meaningful objectives and goals for the Russian state and for Putin that are nothing to do with ISIS itself, per se. Um, I think it's it's a much wider issue of of gaining a foothold in the region. That's not to say that ISIS and their and their affiliates and other Islamic groups will not attack Russia. And I again I I, I read today that uh, 
Saudi clerics, <clears throat> a, a large group of them, basically uh, called for a, for a jihad against uh, against Russia and Iran and and the, you know a, sort of a renewal of the fight. And they included Russia this time specifically and explicitly, which the Saudi monarchy had tried to stop in the past in the hope of winning over Russia, in the hope of making Russia more more practical in its in its uh, behavior towards Syria. But uh, right now, the, you know, Russia has clearly put itself in the camp of the anti-Islamists. And uh, we may well find that there is one group or another that will uh, see uh, Russia as a legitimate target to get, again, radical Muslim public opinion on board. And that's essentially how these groups work. And I, I understand I, as well that the, the U.S. defense minister has warned uh, in, in the past couple of days, that Russia may well face attacks by radical extremists. Russia's in intervention into Syria is certainly a direct challenge to U.S. hegemony over the Middle East, but it also is a challenge to the Middle East regional powers, in particular Turkey and Saudi Arabia. I um, mean, we had this incident a few days ago where a Russian plane violated Turkish airspace and there was a lot of hemming and hawing between the Turkish government and, and the Russian government. Um, what, are, what are your thoughts on Russia's challenge to the, the regional powers of the Middle East? Well, you know, absolutely. It's, I've, I've actually been quite astounded and there's been no denial that... Uh, that you know Russia has violated Turkish airspace. That they've been, they've apparently also there's been the firing of missiles from the Caucasus, without you know the protocol of warning NATO forces of what it's doing, um, in, in you know violating Turkish airspace as well. And remember, you know, Russia, Moscow, and Ankara had spent a decade building relations and trust and trade. Uh, so this kind of uh, rather uh, you know, opportunistic and uh, non-thoughtful approach, if you like, by Moscow has been quite astounding to me and place, you know, and creates greater risk in terms of a potential clash or some kind of situation that, that further, uh, you know, cr creates further tension. Right now, we know and we can see that Saudi Arabia has taken on board, you know, to, uh, on itself to double its efforts not only against the Assad regime, but it's become clear, to, you know, and, and, and obvious that Russia is pitting itself against Saudi Arabia. This is the way that the Saudis see it. Previously, they had considered that Russia could always be sold or, or it can be convinced to change track. Partly, they, the Saudis tried to offer lucrative arms deals and also other contracts, including a railway line to Mecca and Medina in, in, in the western Saudi Arabia and other important projects. Later, you know, arguably the Saudis tried a little bit of soft and economic pressure, partly related to the fall in oil prices. And although Saudi Arabia was hurting, they were ready to, to play the game of, if you like, biting the fingers and seeing who says ouch first and, um, and keeping prices low in the hope that Putin would be forced to reconsider. But now it's clear that Putin is going in, you know, with, uh, you know, full guns blazing. And so Saudi Arabia now will take it upon itself to do what it can to limit that and push that back because it feels that its own, uh, you know, its own entity is threatened. 
Turkey is going to be interesting because there is such mutual interdependence, economic interdependence between uh, Turkey and Russia. But I think I have to say, and Turkey is also more complex internally, politically speaking. Um, but I think I have to say that what Russia is doing is also a, a serious threat to Turkey for a variety of reasons. But the most important of which relates to the Kurdish question. The Turks, I think, will be highly concerned and worried about Russian motives and whether this, the end game of the chaos or the situation that the Russians will be plotting will involve in one way or another some kind of Kurdish entity in eastern Syria, where the Kurds already have some kind of uh, autonomy. And we know that traditionally Russia and the Kurds have very good relations, uh, particularly with the, with the leftist Kurdish movements who have been fighting Turkey for many years, for many decades. So I believe that the Russian moves will only bring Turkey, Saudi Arabia, Qatar, other countries in the region together to try and push back uh, and to uh, countenance the Russian position. And so we're in for a, for a mighty battle, I think, a, a new Cold War, a regional one in the Middle East. The question is, what will the United States do? And I think the, the feeling among Turkey and Saudi Arabia is that we need to take the initiative for as long as President Obama is in power, because there is a sense that Obama will not do anything and that he has already failed them over and over, in their view, uh, and shown to himself to be weak and, and being decisive. And uh, they will wait the year out, they will take the initiative and hope that the United States, after Obama, post-Obama, will weigh in and change you know, the, the, the ground in the Middle East. And, and finally, what do you think is, is the um, impact of Russia's uh, involvement in the Syrian civil war? How will that alter or change or um, uh, set the course for the civil war? Well, I think as I hinted, uh, you know, uh, uh, just now, it's going to take longer. It's going to take, it's going to last another year at least and more. Uh, it's, it's, it's now become a war of attrition. I also, as I mentioned, I think, I do believe that the Russian intervention in the short term was because the situation on the ground was changing rapidly against the Assad regime, which was setting the, the, the scene for a political change and a potential resolution of the conflict there. What it's done now is it's stabilized the balance again, the attrition, with the, with the Turks and the Saudis digging in more and digging in further. What we will have is a prolonged battle. We'll have more refugee crises impacting Europe, We'll have some humanitarian tragedies. I think it will get much worse before it get better. Um, but I do, I have to say, I do think, and, you know, this is a futuristic look and, uh, you know, it's, it's open to question. I do think that it's a losing battle for Russia. I don't think that it's viable to maintain this conflict for very long, you know, for, for one year, two years, three years. And if the Russians are hoping that in one way or another that the situation in Syria will balance out, and I think you, this has come out as an argument time and time again, that what, part of what Russia is doing in Syria is really part of the negotiated deal that Russia is looking for in Ukraine and vis-a-vis -vis and Crimea. And that there will be a package of resolutions with the United States that would solve this. And the United States, I, I think, is not ready to go down that path. No one is. So I think, you know, it's a gamble that Putin has taken 
that at this point in time does not look like it's, it's sustainable in the long run. But in the short term, it just means prolonging the, the conflict and making it worse. That was Talal Nizamidin, Dean of Student Affairs at the American University in Beirut and author of Putin's New Order in the Middle East. I'm your host, Sean Guillory, and this is the SRB Podcast. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, where if you have a moment, you can write a review. You can also follow me on Twitter, at Sean's Russia Blog. Until next time, goodbye. Моя Марусечка, моя ты куколка, моя Марусечка, моя ты душенька, моя Марусечка, а жить-то хочется, я весь горю тебя, молю, будь моей женой.